0: Welcome to Episode 7 of Agents of Everything. My name is James Tripp, and in this episode, we're going to be looking at developing the I that chooses. Now, before we go any further, I want to make it absolutely clear, this will be clear from the title of the episode, that when I say the I that chooses, I'm talking about capital I, the word we use I to refer to ourselves. I am, I can, I do. I think, therefore, I am. That I. Okay? Not EYE. Now, I did want to clarify this because I'm making this episode off the back of a request for this episode, but the person who made the request had written, could you say more about the EYE that chooses? Okay? And that's a very understandable mistake because in a previous episode, I just talked about the eye that chooses and that wasn't clearly distinguished. So this is what we're talking about in this episode, developing the eye that chooses and The truth of the matter is, is what we cover in this episode is really just scratching the surface. It's really just tickling the edges of this topic because this is something that goes really deep. It is at the heart of us being in our power in the world, being grounded in the eye that chooses, in our ability to choose, in our ability to act, in our ability to make the differences we want to make and to not just live our lives as George Gurdjieff would have put it, Living our lives like sleepwalkers, like unconscious robots. We want to be awake and in the eye that chooses at least when we need to be. We cannot live our lives all the time from that place. And some people from a philosophical perspective would argue that we can never truly be in that place. But we're not interested here in facts. We're not interested here in truths. We're interested in orientation and engagement. How we show up and how we engage. This is much more about attitude an awareness and a way of looking at things than it is about finding capital T truth. So we're going to be looking here at developing the eye that chooses. And I don't remember necessarily everything that I've covered in previous episodes. We're on episode number seven. And by the way, as I say this, um, if you like Agents of Everything and you want it to continue, please do rate it on whatever service you listen to. If you're on Apple, if you're on Spotify, please do give it a rating there please do share it with your friends. And also, if you're not subscribed on Substack, please go to the Agents of Everything on Substack and subscribe there. It's a free subscription. It just supports the making of these episodes. Now, what I was saying there was that I don't always remember, even though we're only on episode seven of this, exactly what I've said. But I do know that I'm likely to have spoken about the eye that chooses within the context of being introduced to this by an old mentor of mine, Steve Chandler. Now, forgive me if I've told this story, but I'll recap it very, very briefly. Steve Chandler was somebody who coached me 2013, 2014, I think. I spent a year being coached by Steve in all, and he was somebody who really changed the way I approach life, changed the way I approach my professional work. I got so much from working with Steve, and I've been saying recently there's almost like this large language model version of Steve that exists in my brain. Because so much of what he shared moved my mind, and shifted my outlook in powerful ways. And this kind of continues to exist within me. And I think I probably said, when I mentioned this before, that before I was working with Steve, I had been deep in hypnosis, deep in NLP, working with these kind of modalities. Coming from a place that saw self-transformation, self-development, really through the filter of looking at unconscious patterning. Okay? Now, there was a presupposition in there that we could be in our power. There could be an eye there that chose to change our patterning. But basically, it was our patterning that ran the show in our lives, right? And I used to say when I'd give talks, I'd open up my sort of standard keynote saying, people are patterned. They walk the way they walk, talk the way they talk, and they think the way they think, right? I would often open up a, uh, a keynote in this way. Now, there is some truth to that. But it doesn't mean it is the truth, right? We don't get to get a truth. I've talked about this elsewhere. We just have different ways of looking at things, and they offer different options and they offer different choices. But deep inside of this neuro linguistic programming model that saw us as a set of programs, and in a sense, almost a victim to those programs, unless we could step outside of them and reprogram them, there was never any talk, really, at least when I learned NLP originally, there was never any talk of this choice that kind of cuts through your patterning or cuts through your programming. And we're going to be looking at this and it's not the same as willpower. It's not struggling against or anything like that. It's more about turning up a spotlight of consciousness and awareness of being truly grounded in an I am and an I can that can choose in this moment and each and every moment of our lives. It does not make our unconscious patterning Uh, irrelevant, but it is a very, very powerful place to be able to stand and act from. And that's what I want to talk about in this particular episode. The first time I heard Steve talk about this, I can't remember exactly what he said to me, but it was something along these lines. There's something I was saying. I was probably caught up in some idea about my patterning. And he said to me, stop, just stop, stop identifying with your history. Stop identifying with your personality. Stop identifying with who you think you are and start identifying with the I that chooses. Okay, start identifying with the I that chooses. Nowadays, I would think about it a little bit differently. I would think about it as being grounded in the I that chooses, centered in the I that chooses. Okay, rather than identifying, which is kind of a bit of a left hemisphere, Rarified abstract concept. I want to be inside of that when I'm in my power to choose. So I want to talk about this. Now, even though I was introduced to this frame, so to speak, this way of seeing by Steve Chandler, this was not my first foray into developing the eye that chooses. In fact, that started way, way back. And I've told this story before, so I'm not going to go deep into it. You'll find it in other places. Um, but I've told the story of how when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, I really felt like everything was on top of me. I felt like I had no power in the world. I certainly wasn't connected to my power. When a whole bunch of stuff came about, it all came to a head, I felt there was a lot of pressure on me. And I'd got an opt-out. I'd got signed off work on uh, quote-unquote mental health grounds. And I got some time and space in my life. And I had this moment where I realized I was going to continue to spiral down or I could continue to try and avoid the world. I was living in avoidance and I was trying to avoid everything because everything terrified me. And I realized I could keep trying to avoid the world, but where would that go? You know, would I end up uh, like in a sort of one flew over the cuckoo's nest situation sectioned in a mental institution or something like that? Right. I could see that path stretching out ahead of me and I didn't want that. I also thought maybe I could just like end it all right now doing that cold suicidal ideation thing, I probably should have done a trigger warning at the front of this around that, as it's the way of things these days. But those were the things that were in my mind. And I had this shift, this shift in seeing, this shift in being, this shift in consciousness, and I don't know where it came from. Maybe people say when you're at rock bottom, things can change, but this mind shift, it came to me out of the blue, so to speak. And it came to me in the form of these words, The world is not going to reorganize itself to suit my needs. It was a realization and it was a taking of ownership. The world is not going to reorganize itself to suit my needs. I'd seen the world as a collection of oppressive forces and circumstances, of things to be avoided, uncomfortable, unpleasant, painful things to be avoided. And of course, whatever you're avoiding is driving your life, is determining your life. Not you, not your values, not what you love, not what you want to create. Avoidance. That's what drives the whole game when you get caught up in it. So that was the place I was in. I realized the world is not going to reorganize itself to suit my needs. This was what Nathaniel Brandon calls the no one's coming moment. I learned this many years later. Nathaniel Brandon, uh, often called the father of self-esteem. I think he kind of coined the term and really pushed the self-esteem movement. He used to say the real change in life comes when you realize no one's coming right? No one's coming to bring you your happiness on a velvety cushion or anything like that, or you know, good things. No one's coming, right? When you seize your own power and start to stride into the world and help yourself. This was my no one's coming moment. The world is not going to reorganize itself to suit my needs. Now, I've often referred to that as what I call the power switch. It was me stepping into my power. I didn't think of it at the time as me stepping into the I that chooses, but it was my power being grounded in What can I do? What difference can I make in the face of everything that is not going to change to suit my needs? What can I do? So this was my first shift. I'm not going to continue to tell the full story, you know, my personal biography of finding my way to more personal power. That's power in the world, power with the world, power with the circumstances of our lives, the power to create what we want to create. But I just want to bring that first point in. And I'm going to find some different ways of talking about this right now. I will skip forward right here and say many, many years later, I discovered a lot of other empowering philosophies and one that was useful to me, which I discovered via the work of Albert Ellis. Albert Ellis was the developer of an approach to cognitive behavioral therapy called rational emotive behavioral therapy. He was the original CBT, and I actually think the best. I think it's better than the modern CBT, the Aaron Beck stuff. Uh, I really like Albert Ellis' work. I'm not a fan of Albert Ellis as a clinician. I do not think he was a great communicator or a great clinician, but his philosophy was very powerful, and it actually came from uh, stoicism. And I'll just tell the side story here with this, how Albert Ellis came to bring stoicism into a therapy context. When Ellis was a young man, he was paralyzed by insecurities. He was very, very shy, very, very insecure. So he wasn't comfortable talking to other people, had a lot of social anxiety. This is something I really relate to because that was a big thing for me when I was younger. And Ellis knew there was an issue with this and he discovered Stoicism. And he basically applied the lessons of stoicism. He used, I would say he used Stoicism to repattern his consciousness, to change his consciousness. And the issues of anxiety and this kind of thing went away, right? Just with this old school stoicism. Now, this is actually what led Ellis to become a psychotherapist. He went on and he thought to himself, well, if I could do this much, if I could make this much difference in my life with just these old books, what could I do with real psychotherapy? So he went on, as I understand it, to learn a Freudian psychoanalysis and start practicing as a psychoanalyst. But what he found is he just didn't get very good results with psychoanalysis. So what he started to do is he started to revert back to this old stoicism stuff and work it into a therapy approach. And suddenly he started getting really good shifts, really good changes with his client. And this is the origins of REBT, but it comes from stoicism. Now, there's a key idea in stoicism, which I encountered in the Enchiridium, which is Epictetus's, one of Epictetus's works, his major work, perhaps, there's a passage in there that says the only place that we have true power is with our conceptions and our choices. Okay, Some translations, because obviously this wasn't written in English, some translations will say the only place we have control is with our conceptions and our choices. But I'm going to contrast power and control, probably not in this episode, but I am going to contrast choice and control in this episode. Control is often Pretty unhealthy thing, particularly when we're dealing with complex systems, which is most of what we're dealing with in human life. All right, so I prefer the translation myself. The only place we truly have power is with our conceptions and our choices. Now, there's another concept called the sphere of power, which I shall talk about in a moment, which relates to this. But I want to point something out about this our conceptions and our choices. What does this mean? Most people have a pretty good idea about what choice means. Right? Would you like tea? Would you like coffee? Would you like an apple? Would you like an orange? Right? People get a sense of choosing and choice. You know, They pick up a menu and they recognize that they get to choose what they're going to order. So this is actually a pretty superficial level of choice, but it's something that people can relate to. So there's nothing mysterious about the concept of choice for most people. The idea of conceptions, that's not so immediately apparent. What is meant by conceptions? Now, I've talked about this in previous episodes conceptions this means the sense we make of something and the reason that epictetus is pointing out that we have power with our conceptions what he's saying is we get to choose the sense we make of something now most people don't choose the sense they make right they don't they just work with the sense that they developed growing up the stuff that was handed to them a mishmash of experiences and the ideas of other people there's not much intentionality in their sense making What Epictetus is saying is we can be intentional in our sense-making, and when we are intentional in our sense-making, it changes how we experience the world and see the world, and it changes the choices we get, right? Now, here's a weird thing. If the only place we have power is with our conceptions and our choices, and Epictetus is saying, well, we can choose to change our conceptions, it's our conceptions that create the choices we see. So there's a weird self-referential system going on here between conceptions and choices. Right? And what I'm going to say right here is, although we're going to scratch the surface with this particular episode, the real place that we start to have power with choice is when we start to choose, and this is essentially what something like NLP is about, we start to choose to repattern our conceptions or simply choose different ways of sense-making and seeing. And I talked about this elsewhere as escaping the truth trap. When we're caught in the truth trap, we have only one way of seeing things because we believe it's the truth. We cannot choose a different perceptual position on something or a different set of sense to look at something through. We do not get to choose our conceptions when we're caught in the truth trap. And so we're limited only to the choices we believe that that particular map of the world offers. So we get limited in our choices. Now, I'm going to talk more in other episodes about neurolinguistics because that's been a big influence on me. But the very first text of neurolinguistic programming, before it was called neurolinguistic programming, back when it was still called Meta, the very first text, the first book written was The Structure of Magic, Volume 1. And it's very clear in The Structure of Magic, Volume 1 that the work in that book is about helping people enrich their map of the world. Right? These is their conceptual sets, back to the conceptions bit of conceptions and choices right that is the work of early neurolinguistic programming there was no programming there back then and they observe in that book banner and grinder observe that people never lack choice in the world they only lack choice in their maps of the world right if their map of the world or their conceptions do not highlight a choice they cannot make a choice even if that choice is potentially there in the world so, Banner and Grinder, with their early work, The Structure of Magic, they saw the therapists they've been looking at and modeling as being people that help, helped their clients increase the number of choices they were able to see in the world, very much about choice. It's right there in the early text of, of NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. When I learned NLP, I never read that text. I went on an NLP practitioner training. And by that time, a lot of the ideas from Ericsson and the unconscious mind are coming. But if you go back to that early stuff, there's that real key uh, focus on choice, right? So Epictetus says the only places we have true power is with our conceptions and our choices. Banner and Grinder are saying it's our conceptions that dictate our choices. Those conceptions make up a map of the world. When we enrich that, we are able to create more choices. So they see that the work they're doing back then is helping people enrich their maps of the world. But of course we can enrich our own maps of the world. It can be challenging because it's difficult to sometimes get unstuck from the perspective we're in. When we're looking at something through a certain set of lenses and we are falling for the trap of how I see it is how it is and what I see is all there is, we can get ourselves stuck. This is why a lot of the coaching work that I do is quite simple. I am inviting people to see things in different ways, ways that wouldn't occur to them unless they were working with me or somebody else who can help them see differently. So this is really ancient, this idea of choice, this idea that we can find power in our choices. There's another idea from Stoicism that's really important here, which is the sphere of power. Again, this is sometimes translated as the sphere of control, and for reasons that I will touch on very shortly, I think control is, in a sense, it's a pathological idea. It's one that gets us stuck more than one that creates freedom. But we'll come to that in a moment. So there's this idea from Stoicism of the sphere of power. There are certain things in life which are within your power and certain things which are outside of your power. And this is a simplistic distinction, by the way. But it doesn't matter because we're not looking for capital T truth. We're looking for a useful framework here. Now, there's another framework that I sometimes use, which is range of influence, right? I, I'm a great believer that in life we can control, there is almost nothing that we can control in our lives, but there is almost nothing that we cannot influence to some degree. Now, some things are strongly within our sphere of influence and some things are weakly within our sphere of influence. So if we take that that um, sphere of influence idea, strong and weak, then we have this kind of analog model that's not quite the same as the sphere of power the sphere of power is a binary model it's inside the sphere of power or it's outside there's utility to both of these models i would encourage people to work with the sphere of power model first and the sphere of influence model later on when they want to have a higher definition concept but they're use, you know they're more used to uh working with that lower definition one which is easier to work with to start with so we're going to look at the sphere of power now the sphere of power just looks at anything in our lives that we have power with versus the things that we don't right what can we influence versus what can we not and again it's a simplistic distinction this idea is simple it says once we understand what is within our sphere of power that's where we put our energy and attention exclusively on that which is within our sphere of power. And we put absolutely zero energy and attention on that which is outside, right? Now, this binary creates a choice because binaries always create choice. This or that, that's choice. A or B, that's choice. A, B or C. But you want a minimum of one distinction, right? And and I might talk about distinctions within this episode because distinctions the introduction of new distinctions into our worldview is a very powerful way to create choice. It's one of the primary ways that Steve Chandler coached me and I coach other people through the introduction of distinctions. Distinctions create choice. This versus that. No distinction, no choice. So we have this simple distinction. Is that in my power? Is it not in my power? Okay? There's a, another way you could look at this. And and by the way, what I will say is the, what the Stoics advocate here to be clear is that we put our attention only on that which is within our power and we waste no mental energy on that which is outside of our power okay now this is a tricky thing to do most people in life are spending a lot of mental energy on stuff that's outside of their power right you ever read the news quote unquote the news and get upset about it what's going on there in the world how much of it's within your sphere of power okay how you meet that how you respond to that that is within your sphere of power but what's actually happening out there in the world isn't so the question is do you want to put your energy and attention on it and uh, i'm not giving you an answer to that question i'm just posing the question now this idea sphere of power this comes up in other traditions byron katie for example and maybe she was influenced by stoicism maybe she was influenced by some other predecessor i'm starting with byron katie here but i could have started with others She's got this idea that there's three sorts of business in the world. My business, your business, and God's business, is the way she puts it. Or it could be my business, other people's business, and the universe's business, let's say. And what Byron Katie says is if you put your energy and attention on other people's business, then there's no one attending to your own business, right? Other people's business or the universe's business or God's business. You put your energy and attention there. No one's watching your own wheelhouse. No one's paying attention to your own business. So you want to know the difference between those. It's the same as the Stoic sphere of power. Now, there's another place this shows up. A lot of people have heard the serenity prayer. I'm going to do this from memory if I can. Serenity prayer, I think, goes, Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Okay. What are we talking about here? It's the sphere of power again, right? Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the things outside of my sphere of power. The things that in Byron Katie's conception would be other people's business or God's business or the universe's business. Grant me the serenity, peace that is, to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things that I can, the things inside of my sphere of power, right? That's what's my business, that's my business, the stuff that's inside my sphere of power. Your business is what's inside your sphere of power, right? And the wisdom to know the difference. This is a really key thing, being able to look and go, what's in my power here, what's not? And to be able to live at the level of choice to let go of that which is not within your sphere of influence or power, that which you do not have much leverage with, right? Let it go, let it slide. Move your attention to the place you have more power, more leverage. Now, people do this all the time. They mix this up all the time. One classic area people mix this up is when they fall for the idea that they can't be happy unless other people behave in a certain way or act a certain way or think a certain thing or see them a certain way or whatever. And so they expend a lot of energy and attention worrying about other people's behavior and what other people think or how other people think about them. Speaking for myself, when I was younger, I was very, very concerned that people wouldn't like me. And I was particularly concerned that people would think I was stupid. Like that was a horror of horrors to me. What if they think I'm stupid? They're going to think I'm stupid. Of course, it doesn't make any difference if somebody thinks I'm stupid. Who cares if somebody thinks I'm stupid? It changes absolutely nothing about who I am and how I am. And as long as I don't fall for the myth that they have power over me, right? And some people go, but what if they do have power over you? I will find my power and cut through that. So I'm not fussed about it, right? I trust myself deeply to find my power and always connect to my choices. So what other people think of me and and any perceptions of power that they might have over me are irrelevant to me, right? So I used to be in this place. I'd be worried what people would think about me. I was up in my head all the time. I was concerned about what kind of impression I would make. Why? Because I thought they had the power, not me. So I was deeply concerned about what they thought about me. So I'd often be trying to find ways to sort of control their perceptions of me, but I didn't have the ability to do that a lot of people get caught in these kinds of traps and just giving that as an example right so once i stopped trying to micromanage other people's perceptions of me and just started grounding in my own power and choices man life got easier a lot lot easier so i'm 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 doing this thing and alfred adler the uh psychotherapist alfred, alfred adler he was part of that group that was Freud, Jung. Alfred Adler used to hang around with Freud and Jung. And just as Jung and Freud have very different philosophies, Adler had a very different philosophy still. One of Alfred Adler's ideas is also a nod to this. Maybe he was aware of stoicism. He talked about performing in your life what he called the separation of tasks. This is his way of doing it. What's What are your tasks? I.e., what, what what's your work? What's your business? as uh, Byron Katie puts it, and what other people's tasks, right? And and the, the task of judging me for every other individual is their task. It's not my task to manipulate their judgments of me, right? So Adler would point out that when we carry out the separation of tasks, that is we figure out what's inside of our sphere of power and what warrants our attention in life, and we let other people take care of what's in their sphere of power but outside of ours, whatever that may be, life gets a lot, lot easier. We stop trying to micromanage everything, trying to control other people around us, either consciously or unconsciously, which a lot of people do. They'll often go, oh, you know, you know," they'll act offended or outraged or upset or whatever at the behavior of others. It's an attempt to control that other person's behavior. It's an attempt to get into their business. It's an attempt to get into the other person's sense-making and epistemology and change the way they see things. Because I can't be all right unless you see things the way I think you should, or you see me the way I think you should. This is a recipe, that kind of confusion of uh, you know, the, the, the intermingling of tasks, the confusion of tasks, the non-separation of tasks. is a kind of confusion that disempowers people and leads them to live in almost a sense of, or at least on the edge of perpetual panic and fear. It's a very disempowering way to look at the world. So that brings us neatly on to the topic of control versus choice. Now, I've already hinted at this, that control, I think, is largely a pathological concept. And this first came to me many, many years back when I was a hypnotherapist. Okay, When I was first a hypnotherapist, I used to do intake forms. I'd get people to fill out a form telling me, I'd ask a bunch of questions, they'd tell me about their issue, what was going on, what they thought needed to happen to change it. And one of the things that I started to notice coming up on a lot of these forms was reference to control, particularly when I asked people what they thought the answer to their problem might be, what the solution might be. I'd always ask this in my intake form. Very often, the concept of control would come up. If I could just control my eating, if I could just control my emotions, if I could just control my thoughts, if I could just control my husband or my wife, if I could, you know, this idea of control, like the solution was all about control. And I thought, isn't that an interesting thing? Why does this come up so much in people's problem organizations of reality? When I'm working with people, I'm looking at their organizations of reality. What kind of freedoms does that create? And what kind of constraints does that create? What kind of fears does that create? And what kind of opportunities and possibilities does that create? Right? I don't mean in an intellectual sense here either. I mean in an embodied sense, an experiential sense. So I'd see this organization of reality coming up a lot, this key operational concept of control, and it never seemed to be a resource or an empowering concept. So I thought a lot about it. And this is when I first started to connect to the idea of power as a more effective resource so I've started to say this to people I say well you know you think you want control but what you really need is power and interestingly people would recoil at the idea of having power oh no I don't want power it's almost like it terrified them having power they wanted control but not power which is a curious kind of thing I mean think about a speedboat let's say the power comes from the engine and the control comes from the the wheel Uh, if you cut the engine you can't control the boat anyway. So, without power, how could you even have control? So, you know, if power is a more fundamental thing, but people are conditioned to recoil away from it. Maybe it's because with great power, I think this is the Spider Man line, isn't it? With great power comes great responsibility. People don't want responsibility. They don't want the stuff on their shoulders, right? They shy away from it and they seek safety instead. Okay, so people are often afraid of power. And I'm, you know, I've talked about power elsewhere. I'm not talking about when I talk about power. I don't mean like Machiavellian political power. I don't mean zero sum game power. Who's up, who's down. I'm not talking about power over others. I'm talking about power to, power to act in the world, power to make the differences you want to make, okay? Power to and power with, power with things as well to a certain degree. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about power. So I noticed this this idea of control seemed to be a pathological idea. Now I'm going to share something here from a book which I got on an audio book recently. It's by a guy called Andrew Daniel. It's called Awaken to Your True Self, Why You're Still Stuck and How to Break Through. And this book had a fantastic bunch of reviews. It was recommended by Audible to me. Take my glasses off so I can read this. It's a lovely passage in here about control and about safety and how it relates to safety and our ability to trust ourselves. Okay, all it all all feeds back into itself. The more you're in your power, the more you're in your choice, your ability to make the differences, the more you know that whatever the world sends your way, you can meet it and create with it. The more you know this deeply, the less you need to control and the less you crave safety. So this passage refers to this. If we can only feel safe when we are in control, and we can never be fully in control of everything, we always feel unsafe. This mythology dictates that only more and more control is the solution. It zealously preaches to us that more rules, more laws, more power, more regulation, more management is the way to be safe, and it makes freedom a threat. It seeks to add so many constraints and rules to keep us safe, that it winds up suffocating us to death. Now, as I read this passage, some people might be thinking to themselves, well, is this talking about like our personal life or is this talking about the world around us? And it's an interesting thing because this desire for control, the way this shows up for people on an individual level is often a lot of worry right a lot of what if thing in their mind like oh what if this what if that oh i don't want and if you have know, fear of making the wrong decision so a lot of indecision this kind of thing it manifests personally as uh, insecurity and anxiety often and this kind of thing you'll hear my dog barking in the background but i'm going to carry on nonetheless um it, it manifests as a lot of insecurity and uncertainty now i often call this micromanaging and it's not like the person really is controlling anything. They're just desperately grasping for control in their mind. And they're failing to find it because they're dealing with complexity. They're dealing with complex systems. We as individuals are complex systems. We as individuals in our uh, physical and social environment are part of an even broader, even more complex system. bio systems are complex. They are not controllable. Okay, so if we need to have control in order to be safe, we're never going to be safe. We're never going to be secure. And this is what this is talking about. Then it goes on to start to talk about it says here it zealously preaches to us more rules, more laws, more power, more regulation, more management. That that's the way to be safe. Now some people might think, well, you know, are we talking about Something more than a personal thing here? Are we talking about how people feel society should be organized? Are we getting into the realms of the political here? And I think that maybe we are. And I think, you know, this is a whole other podcast episode how that somebody's individual personal psychology and their sense of security and their sense of personal power unfolds out into their beliefs about how society should be structured, how government should work. There's a lot of shooting. People that have no connection to their own power to meet the world and create with the world, they start to live a lot in the land of should. Well, things should be this way. People shouldn't do this. It should be. And what they're saying is circumstances must be exactly as I dictate. Otherwise, I cannot be safe. It's a myth. It's an illusion. It's an addiction to control that cannot be had. But people will. that doesn't mean that people won't strive for it. And of course, because it cannot be had, it's a sucker's game. You can't win that game. The coconut's nailed down. You can throw as many rocks as you want. You will not knock the coconut off. So if somebody believes that in order to be safe, I must control the world. The world must be under control. There must be no complexity. There must be no chaos. They can never be at peace. And they can never be in their power. Okay, so there's a self-defeating vicious circle inside of that. So it manifests in two ways. People will internalize it in terms of fear and anxiety and a lot of threat response behavior. And they will externalize it through a lot of shoulding. Here's how the world should be. Here's how the world should behave. Here's how people should behave. Here's how they should think. Here's how they shouldn't think. Here's what they should do. Here's what they shouldn't do. Okay. So it tends to have an external expression as well. That does not usually land well because it's, Disrespects other people's personal sovereignty. Okay. And people don't like having their personal sovereignty disrespected. And it inevitably ends up leading to spirals of conflicts. It's very, very unhealthy. And it all comes from this control addiction and this belief that in order for me to be safe and okay, the world must be a certain way. Circumstances must be a certain way. Okay. So, right here, I'm going to introduce a particular distinction, which is one that is part of my personal philosophy, my worldview. I often offer it to um, clients, and it is circumstances versus choice. Now, in this rendering of reality, there's always circumstances. Circumstances are present all the time. Circumstances are whatever's happening right now. Okay? Whatever's happening That we are not directly choosing is what I call circumstances. Now, this could be anything. It could be the situation I find myself in. It could be that I'm out. You know, I was out a few months ago. This just comes to my mind: walking my dog late in the evening, and a guy suddenly started shouting at me, having a go at me, and being quite aggressive with me. I was just out walking my dog in the evening. I'm thinking, what? What the heck's going on? I didn't choose that. That was the circumstances of the moment. Okay. Now, circumstances aren't always external in this model that I'm offering you right here. Circumstances can be internal. Let's say I have a sad feeling come up inside of me, or an anxious feeling come up inside of me, or any kind of feeling that I may label in any kind of way, okay? And I don't like that feeling. Am I choosing that feeling? Some people would say, I am, somewhere, unconsciously, I'm choosing it or whatever. I don't think that's a useful thing to think. If I'm not there, if I cannot immediately choose to make that feeling go away, I call that circumstances. So for me, my circumstances are not just what's happening in the world around me. They're the feelings and thoughts that are coming up inside of me that I did not choose and that I cannot choose to immediately switch off or or, uh, shift into something else. Now, some people in the world of self-development will say, well, James, uh, are you no good at state control? So some NLP trainers talk about state control. I think state management is a more realistic term. And and actually, no, I'm reasonably good at state management, but state management is not state control. If I'm feeling anxious, I have choices in how I meet that and how I work with that, but, but I don't have the basic choice to just go and stop it by doing nothing just other than stopping it. Some people might Good luck to them. I would say if you did have that, you would become dysfunctional because your conscious mind, i.e. like, you know, the the eye that chooses that we're talking about developing here, isn't always the wisest. It needs to operate as part of a bigger collective. It needs to operate within the wisdom of the broader system. Okay. And I'll say that right now. Uh, Living from the eye that chooses doesn't mean ignoring the wisdom of the broader system. It means working with it. So if somebody truly could control their state, they probably wouldn't last very long. It would become highly dysfunctional. They would cease to be human. They would cease to be uh, a rich, adapted system that is part of a greater and broader adaptive system. Okay. So circumstance is just anything that you cannot immediately overturn with a choice. But within any set of circumstances, there are potentially infinite choices. Right? So within circumstances, there are choices. So go back to the example. I'm out walking the dog. This guy comes out, starts being aggressive. I didn't choose his aggression, but I can choose how I meet it. right? And the number of choices I have as to how I meet that will be dictated by the number of ways I'm able to see the situation, how rich. My map of myself in the world and in those sorts of circumstances is. Right? So part of developing the eye that chooses is developing a rich personal map of choices in how we meet the world. So I have this question. If I ever find myself getting stuck or overwhelmed and I'm thinking, well, this is in the way or that's in the way, I'm gonna ask myself this question, which is if all of this is circumstances, whereabouts? is choice okay if all of this is circumstances whereabouts is choice now this perhaps brings us to the most fundamental shift that you can make in connecting to choice and starting to develop the eye that chooses the eye that chooses is more than just the ability to choose it is the eye that develops maps, personal maps, personal sets of conceptions, that enable you to choose to meet whatever comes your way in life more creatively, more adaptively. Right? One of my personal philosophies is, or one of my personal biases, let's say, in terms of uh, how we live in the world, is increasing our potential and our power to create with whatever the world sends our way, right? Create with what comes up, create with what comes up inside of us, create with what comes at us. So I use that creator frame. I create with this, the guy that starts to have a go at me, that's circumstances, but it's like, what can I do with this? How can I meet this? What do I want to create with this? What kind of outcome do I want to create with this material that's coming my way? Okay, so This is something that, again, if I go back to the stuff that Steve Chandler taught me, he called it ownership, right? Ownership is owning your choices. And back then, I think Steve has changed this now, but I actually like his original distinction. I understand why he's changed it. Steve used to call it the owner-victim choice, right? The primary choice that you can choose to live as a victim or you can choose to live as an owner. Now, what's the difference between a victim and an owner? Now, I wanna make it absolutely clear. When I'm talking about a victim here, I'm not talking about what's happened to a person, right? Stuff happens. I've just said circumstances happen. The guy that started being aggressive with me, maybe he would have physically attacked me. He didn't, that's not the way it unfolded. But let's say he'd physically attacked me. Let's say he beat me up, broken my nose or whatever, left me with a black eye. I remember years and years and years ago on a Sunday afternoon, I was in um, a a fried chicken shop in sunny Hertfordshire, just north of London in the UK. I was probably 19 or 20 at the time. And it was a Sunday afternoon. It was about three o'clock in the afternoon. It was a sunny Sunday afternoon. And coming out of that chicken shop, for some reason, I don't know. I was with my girlfriend at the time. A couple of guys decided they wanted to fight me. And they were not going to take no for an answer. So they came up, squared up, got in my face. These days, I'd probably handle it a lot better. But I was 19, 20 years old. I didn't play the unfolding well. And it ended up in a fight with one of these guys. And it wasn't terrible, this fight. It wasn't awful. I ended up with some injuries. And uh, initially, I was on the, 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 the bad end of things. It wasn't going well for me. But then this sort of switch clicked in my head. And I thought, Screw you. Actually, the guy tried to put my head through a window. And at that point, my uh, my fierce beast switched on. And I started really fighting back. And at that point, his friend stepped in and said, oh, it's not worth it and pulled him out. But as a result of that experience afterwards, I had a lot of fear, right? I was looking behind me all the time. I didn't feel secure being out in the world. Now, some people would say, well, that was because you uh, that was a tra- traumatic experience. You had PTSD afterwards. Okay. Now, the, I didn't choose to live in that fear. I didn't choose to be a victim of that fear. I chose to find a way around it and to dissipate it. So somebody could say, well, James, you were a victim of assault. You were a victim of assault. And that might be quote unquote true on one level. But I did not choose inside of myself to step into what I would call a victim relationship with it. I chose instead, in spite of that, to find my power in the face of it, even though I was quite young at the time. That's what I chose to do. And so I rose up and I overcame it. Now, I'm not making a judgment here that says everybody ought to or they should or they must rise up and overcome whatever has happened. Okay, if stuff has had a negative impact upon them in some way. I'm not saying they should do that. I'm simply saying that they can. So when we're talking about the owner-victim choice, victim isn't about a state of affairs. Victim is about an attitude. Do you choose to allow yourself to be victimized psychologically by anything that has happened? Right, and that doesn't necessarily mean big things. When I was young, I was a victim of all sorts of things. I used to say, oh, I can't play lead guitar because I don't have the dexterity, right? I allowed myself to be a victim of my perceived lack of dexterity, right? I allowed that to victimize me. I was a victim to my social anxiety. I was a victim to many thoughts. I couldn't be anything but a victim to many of my thoughts because I didn't know where I had power with them. I didn't learn that until later on. So I'm not judging anyone negatively for living in a victim psychology. I used to do it. Like, why me? Why does it always have to happen to me? Why is it that other people get good things and this always happens to me? You know, why is it that there are no cars coming along until I go to pull out of this junction and then there's a thousand cars coming along, right? So my victim psychology and the, what we're talking about here is an attitude. It's an attitude of defeat by everything. And I'll explain a simple distinction, a simple way of looking at this uh, that will help key you into it on the flip side to that ownership ownership this is where you own your power you own your choice you own your spirit your ability to step into the world make differences in all manner of ways to create good outcomes with whatever comes your way this is ownership now different people have different degrees of ownership and victimhood within their psychology right But if we were to simplify it and say some people are owners and some people are victims, this isn't true, right? Everybody's got some ownership somewhere. Everybody's got some victimhood somewhere, right? Even if they've done their best to wheedle out every corner of it, from time to time they'll feel defeated by things and they won't rise up. They'll lay low. Okay, it's natural, it's human. But here's a simple way of looking at it the owner is somebody who walks through the world habitually sorting for where they can make a difference and the victim is somebody who walks through the world habitually sorting for where they cannot okay it's just that simple where they can make a difference versus where they cannot so this relates to if all of this is circumstances whereabouts is choice where can i make a difference so you might see somebody go to let's say a vending machine they're hungry they want to get a chocolate bar out or you know a packet of crisps packet of chips whatever and they put the money in and it's the only coin they've got although these days i'm sure everything is a tap thing i've been using this metaphor for years so they go put the money in and they press the button and the thing starts to go around and it sticks and their chocolate bar doesn't fall down so a victim will go oh for- goodness sake why is this why does this always happen to me typical right and they'll start to play a victim like it's not fair this kind of thing always happens to me oh i'm gonna i'm gonna go hungry now i'm not even gonna be able to think straight while i'm this hungry and they'll go into all sorts of narratives of oppression by those circumstances and they see no choice the owner on the other hand will go ah that's got stuck Ah, uh, that's not ideal Okay, uh, perhaps I can tilt the machine. Right, oh, It's a tilt alarm, I can't do that. There's a number I can ring at least. Perhaps that will help me out. Maybe I could go find somebody I could borrow some money from, explain, have another crack at getting that going. Whatever, they're going to start looking for the places they can make a difference. So this is a powerful distinction. I first was introduced to this distinction under different languaging. Right? It exists in the underpinning philosophy of neurolinguistic programming. In the meta programs sort of model in neurolinguistic programming, which is a little bit controversial, some NLP trainers, including one of the co-founders, John Grinder, is very much against this model of meta programs. But one of the meta programs is um at cause versus at effect. Right? Are you at cause? Are you the person making the difference? Are you the agents? This podcast is agents of everything. Affects change in the world. Or are you at effect? Is everything else an agent working against you, right? The truth is, is the, the, the flow of these different influences is going all over the place, but where do you orient in yourself? Do you orient in your power and your agency, right? And there was another way that this was introduced to me when I first learned NLP was the problem frame versus the outcome frame, right? And it's really problematizing. It's not problems. It's like if people get stuck in making everything a problem, everything becomes problematic. Everything is problematized and it's problematized because it's seen as a bunch of barriers or a bunch of oppressions or a bunch of stuff that's keeping you down or holding you back or stopping you being able to do what you want to do. Right? So a problem mindset is going to turn everything into a problem. The outcome frame on the other hand is go, okay, so what is it that needs to happen here? Where can I act? Where can I choose? We're back to choice again. When I first learned NLP, when I was first learning it, I made a choice to build this into myself because I realized that I was doing this kind of problematizing behavior. And I remember one particular example I've talked about uh, before, back when I was still employed by others. I was on my way into work one time. I had a meeting to get to and it was raining, which wasn't great, but I used to live about 10 minutes from work, so I'd walk in, and I was walking along the pavement, walking along the sidewalk, and this car went through a puddle, a muddy puddle, and threw all this muddy, filthy water over me. And I caught myself going into a victim or problematizing mindset of going, oh, for F's sake, why does this always happen to me? Right? I can't show up at a meeting like this, this has ruined everything, right? I often joke, oh, you've ruined everything. I joke with my kids. Uh, and I joke with them to highlight how ludicrous it is when people say things like this. You've ruined everything. This has ruined everything. That is the ultimate cry of the victim psychology, right? And I call myself going into this, but instead I was able to help myself off because I had this new distinction. And I said, okay, that could have been better. What is it that needs to happen right now? I could go back home and change my clothes. I don't have time for that because I'll be late for the meeting. Never mind. i have to just go into the meeting and explain what happened. It's no big deal, okay? It really was no big deal, but my mind was gonna make it a big deal. And this is what victim psychology does. I have a good friend of mine, haven't seen him for years, a guy called Marcus Oakey. And he's a coach as well. And one of the ideas that he teaches is what he calls the philosophy of the no big deal or the philosophy of no big deal. If you can make much of what you normally make a big deal of in your mind into no big deal, life gets easier. Learn to live by the philosophy of no big deal. So in that instance, it's not a big deal that my clothes got wet. I can just explain it. It's not a big deal I'm covered in mud. I can just explain it and get on with the meeting. Right? It's not a big deal. Um, I sometimes talk about this as resource thinking, by the way. I'll share a distinction here of resource thinking versus positive thinking. Let's say I'm out walking in the rain. Or let's say I'm out walking and the rain breaks and it starts to hammer down and I get sulking wet. If I was doing positive thinking, I might try and persuade myself that I'm not wet. That's okay. I'm really dry. I'm really dry. So positive thinking often gets into argument with reality. Right. So ownership is about resource thinking. It's not about positive thinking. It's not about arguing with reality. So let's say I'm out in the rain. The rain breaks. I start to get wet. I don't go, uh, that's okay. It's completely dry and sunny. I don't deny reality. I go, okay, it's raining and I'm getting wet. How fortunate that my skin is waterproof, right? Or, okay, I'm getting wet and that's the way it is and I will be dry again. Okay, so it's not getting caught up in the narrative of oppression, but it's also not trying to argue and deny the circumstances, which is what a lot of positive thinking does. Resource thinking and ownership. That's about meeting the world as it is. It's about accepting the nature of things, but finding an empowered relationship with them. I've often said, if you want to create with anything, you have to accept the nature of it. You cannot deny the nature of it. So if I want to create with some clay, I have to accept the nature of clay. That means there are certain things I can create with clay. I have many choices available to me as to what I can create with clay. If I take ownership, I accept the nature of clay and I step into my power to work with it. If I get into an argument with reality over that and I get into a victim relationship, I go, clay, what am I supposed to do with this? I wanted to make a, a, a clock. Can't make a clock out of clay, right? Now I'm in a victim relationship with the material, okay? I've stepped away from my power. I'm in an argument with reality. And if you ever see anyone in argument with reality, put your money on reality because it will always win. right? So if I start doing positive thinking and going, it's not really clay, it's really Meccano, right? or it's really Lego. Of course, you can make different things than Meccano and Lego, uh, but I'm not going to get anywhere. I have to accept the nature of clay. If it was Lego, I'd have to accept the nature of Lego. I'm going to make a better teapot out of clay than I am out of Lego. Right, So I look at the circumstances, but I find my power to create what I can create with those that's useful and going to move things forward. When I say I here, please don't take that as some sort of, oh, look how great I am or anything like that. I'm only into this stuff for purely selfish reasons, but I do work with other people and coach them. So, you know, I'm offering this to you as something for you to connect with and look at the world through or consider exploring with it's not like to say hey look what great skills i've got at mind management or ownership or anything like that okay so we don't want to be an argument with reality we want to accept the nature of things accept circumstances and look at where choice is look at how we can create with what comes up and part of this is about choosing to be that kind of person choosing to find that choice to direct your mind in useful ways over time you'll build richer and richer maps um I'll just say, by the way, something about maps and conceptions and these sorts of things, and I'm going to relate this to the practice of hypnosis. Now this is relevant to you whether or not you are a hypnotist or learning hypnosis or doing anything like that. I know that when people are learning hypnosis, they're often quite fearful because they are actually doing something which involves creating with another person, creating something very specific, very unusual with another person, and they do not have control. And this often creates insecurities for people who are learning hypnosis. They've got this fear that they're going to promote themselves as a hypnotist. They're going to try and do this piece of hypnosis, and it won't work. It will fail. And there's a possibility that it will, particularly if you think about success and failure in that binary way. Now this tends to create insecurity for people when they're first learning hypnosis and that undermines their ground of being so they don't show up in a very powerful way and there's a whole bunch of vicious circles that take them away from their power to create hypnotically with another person. And this was true for me when I was first learning hypnosis. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to make sure that I could create with whatever happened because I couldn't control people So they were going to respond to what I did in whichever way they responded. And I wanted to make sure that whatever their response, I can do something useful with that to move the session forward. So I created an approach, which I later went on to market as a sort of solution for people learning hypnosis to avoid this. I called it the no-fail protocol. And what it meant was that I really learned the game of hypnosis. I really figured out what it was I wanted to do. And I figured out choices for whatever happened. In fact, what I did is I did a lot of preparation for improvisation, right? That seems like a weird thing because people think that improvisation is all about spontaneity, okay? But actually people who are really good at improvising. Whatever area they improvise in have actually done a lot of preparation. They've built conceptual systems, remember conceptions and choices. They've built maps of the game they're going to play that contain rich sets of choices. So I did this with hypnosis and I came up with this system, this approach I called the no fail protocol. And what it meant was I literally went through every possibility in my mind and I tried this and tested this in a street hypnosis concept, whatever kind of response, how could I take that response and create with it? It's back to this idea of create with what comes up. And I took a lot of inspiration from the world of improv theater. There's an idea in improv theater that everything is an offer and you never block an offer. Every offer you accept, you take, you create with. But you don't just do it by being naturally good at improvising. You do it by coming up with options and choices ahead of time. Anybody does this. A martial artist will do this. They spar regularly. They keep encountering a certain problem. They figure out ways to create with that sort of thing. Now, it doesn't mean that it makes them uh, absolutely impervious to defeat. Is that right? The right way of saying it? I don't know. It doesn't mean they're always going to win. Every sparring match. It just means that the more adaptive they become, the richer their maps, the more options, the more choices they build in, the more likely they are to come out with good outcomes. And if they don't, they're able to accept their defeats. They're able to be, uh, you know, grateful in their victories and graceful in their defeats. Okay, and that's yet another way of being able to create with circumstances It's by meeting defeat with grace, right? And then stepping up to quote-unquote fight another day so this is true of any area of life you can actually do a lot of preparation for whatever area and I um, actually recorded an episode I haven't put out where I talk about something called the game frame where you can look at anything in life as a game and build a rich map and a rich set of choices so as you know how you can be really adaptive and really generative within the context of that game whatever the game is It could be the game of boxing. It could be the game of chess. It could be the game of negotiation. It could be the game of relationships. It could be the game of small talk. It could be the game of whatever, negotiation, any game, okay? Anything can be seen as a game and you can develop a rich set of understandings that support a rich set of adaptive choices within any game, right? And this is part of developing the eye that chooses. It's not all about simply stepping into your power. And always asking yourself the questions like, okay, so what is it that needs to happen here? Or what are my options here? Or when all of this is circumstances, whereabouts and what are my choices? Right? Some of it's attitude, but some of it's preparation as well. If you really want to empower yourself to create in life. Okay, so um, to recap, I guess, in a simple way, what we want to do If we want to ground ourselves in the I that chooses and develop the I that chooses, because at the most basic level, the I that chooses is just that sense of I am and I can. The neuroscientist Antonio Damasio talks about this as our core self. Our core self is the pure sense of I am and I can. To be differentiated from the autobiographical self, which is all the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves to make sense of ourselves in the world. Our conceptions are our autobiographical self, our conceptions of self. Our core self is just the raw sense of I am and I can. Sometimes we want to be able to strip things back to that raw sense of I am and I can, but that isn't necessarily the end point of developing the I that chooses. So the I that chooses is an I that has sort of stepped back to that I am and I can, but then rebuilt a new set of conceptions that create a rich, empowered mat of choices around that I am and I can. That I am and I can is the center of it. I am and I can. It's that raw agency. I am an actor in the world. I get to meet the world. I get to create with whatever comes my way, whatever comes from the world around me, whatever comes up inside of me. That is the core of it. But in developing the eye that chooses, we might then start looking at the various games of our life and start to build enriched maps of those so we can find choices. But at the heart of it is this I am and I can. That's a sense of being, but it's an attitude as well, an attitude of ownership. That in itself is a choice. This is why Steve Chandler called this the owner-victim choice. You choose ownership and then you develop your choices, through putting the work in to build enriched maps of the various games of your life. So that's a sort of, there you go, quick capsule recap of where we've gone so far. Last thing I want to say about choice, okay? Choice, for me, involves action. This is a really important thing to point out. Choice is not merely decision, it's action. There's an old joke that says there's five frogs on a log. Three of them decide to jump off. How many frogs are on the log? Well, five, because three only decided to jump off. They didn't actually jump off. So real choice expresses immediately into the world. It makes a difference right now. And this is no small thing. Because often you get people that can be caught up in decision-making paralysis in their life. They're constantly trying to make the right decision, right? Well, should I do this or should I do that? Uh, Yeah, I think, yeah, I've definitely decided I'm going to do this. But they took no action. It didn't express into action. It's like, yeah, I've definitely decided. And so then they, but is it the right decision? And they go back into this, this trap. Okay, and this is what's driven by what I call the myth of the right decision. I may end up doing a separate episode on this. The myth of the right decision or the myth of the correct decision is the idea that you can know what the correct or right choice is ahead of time. And you never can because nobody can predict the future. Absolutely nobody can predict the future with any high degree of accuracy. Like, not more than a few seconds ahead, we can look at what's going on around us and make a prediction about what's likely to unfold if we couldn't do this we couldn't drive a car but we can never be 100 percent accurate with that otherwise if we could nobody would ever have a car crash nobody would ever you know think the person ahead was going to pull away when they didn't and hit the back of them or whatever right so the truth is, is we can't predict the future so the only way you can know whether a decision is right and i'm doing air quotes around this or correct is after the fact when you are judging the results. And even the judgment itself, it's not a fact that it was right or correct, it's a judgment. And the truth of the matter is, is if you live in ownership, if you live in your power, you go, whatever happens, I will always create with my circumstances. I always can create with my circumstances. You cannot make a mistake. All you do is you choose, you act, you end up where you are, which is a new set of circumstances, and you create forward from there. So once you step into being somebody who lives in and from their power, in and from their choice, you know that whatever comes your way, you will create, that you will meet it in your power. We become free to now act in the world and choose in the world rather than being caught up in this decision-making paralysis. People who are afraid of making the wrong decision, why are they afraid of making the wrong decision? Because they are They are experiencing themselves as victims of their circumstances. So they go, well, if I make the wrong decision, the wrong circumstances will come out and those circumstances will have power over me. Whereas if you go, whatever happens, it will create whatever it creates and whatever it creates, I will further create forward with from there. Well, then you're free, right? So wherever you step to is simply the place you step from next. There can be no mistakes in choices. There's just the choices that you make, what they create, and then what you choose to create with what unfolded from the previous set of choices. So once you make this shift, choice becomes action. It becomes movement. It means we are always moving. And this is a good thing because the world is always moving. Life is always moving. It doesn't stop. It may speed up, it may slow down, but it doesn't stop. If you want to be able to constantly create with the world, you want to be moving with the world, okay? You want to be dancing with the world. This means being in flow, in movement the whole time. Analysis paralysis, decision-making paralysis, this kind of thing, it takes us out of flow with life, takes us out of our power to dance results out of reality. That's another episode, of dancing results out of reality, non-linear generative engagement, that kind of thing. But right now, I think this is a good place to bring this to a close. I'm going to invite you, if you've listened to this, if you have any questions about it, as I say, we're really just scratching the surface. But if you have any questions about it, please do ask in the comments section. And if you have any requests for topics you'd like me to put my energy on, then also let me know in that comment section below. Once again, if you've got value from this, please do leave a rating on Spotify, Apple, whatever platform you listen on. If you're not, subscribed yet to Agents of Everything. Please do subscribe. Basic subscription is free. You get these podcasts for free. That is the most fundamental way you can support this work. And also you get the opportunity to engage with the Agents of Everything community through that, through the comments section. And I'm going to be in future creating further opportunities to take that engagement further or deeper. Okay. I thank you all for being here and I look forward to when we next connect.